God's Word this morning, continuing as we've been studying in Matthew chapter 16 at a very important place in that gospel. Last time we looked at the epic confession of Christ spoken by Peter on behalf of the other disciples that he was the Christ, the Son of the living God. And I did not elaborate much on verse 20 last time that Jesus warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ on that occasion. Maybe people wonder why that was. Why shouldn't they go out and tell everybody? Well, one big reason was they didn't really understand what it meant for him to be the Christ. They only had a portion of the truth. And as we move on today, I read just the section of Matthew 16, 21 through 25 for this next very important revelation from the Lord. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. And then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. And this is the Word of God. I caught just once, I believe it was early last week, a new TV commercial. Some of you may have seen it. I found it very amusing. It's a commercial in which several men are talking with Cal Ripken, Jr., possibly one of the most famous baseball players alive today, member of the Hall of Fame, Iron Man Cal, the record breaker for most consecutive games played. Well, this, these uh, fellows talking to Cal are apparently friends of his from back in high school days. And two of them know very well who he is, but one rather clueless fellow says, so Cal, you and I went to high school together, but I've sort of lost track of you. What on earth have you been doing since we graduated? Well, if you need to have it explained to you what Cal Ripken had been doing as his life work, you've truly been asleep for a long time. You know how when we meet anyone for the first time, our first move is to get their name, and then the next thing we usually get around to pretty quickly, especially in America, is what work do you do? We want to know what defines this person in terms of the economy or the work of everyday life. Are you a homemaker, a surgeon, a a nurse, a teacher, a sales representative? And, of course, then you may have a basis for discussion, or at least you know some basic thing about that person. Well, learning a name and learning a life work, I think, is the key to Matthew 16. Who is Jesus? 
Peter has given the climactic answer here in verse 16. You are the Christ. I told you the very literal way to translate it last time. The Christ, the Son of the God, the Living One. This was a tremendous declaration of meaning in terms of the deity of Christ and the grandeur of his office. I called it the supreme confession because it's the great truth that we all must acknowledge about the divine Son of God as Lord and Savior. We need to confess this reality, this truth, which is at the core of all that Jesus is. And the eternal church of Christ is built on the rock of this confession, not the man Peter, What he confessed upon this rock, Peter, this wonderful thing that you've just said, I will build my church. Now, once we know who Jesus is, the next vital step is, what did he come to do? What is his work? Well, Peter was praised by Jesus when he called him the Christ, the living God, and he thought he knew what work that entailed. And we know that his assumptions were that Jesus would now rise up and take up a rather militant stance as Messiah of Israel somehow or other, defeating enemies like Rome and others that oppressed God's people. And I'm sure that Peter and the spirits of the others were rising to realize that they would be the prime ministers. They would be the main assistants in a new government, a government anticipated from Old Testament days when the Messiah ruled among his people. Imagine, if that was in your mind, how you would receive what Jesus has said in this text that we have read today. When he tells these same disciples that his path into a kingdom meant submitting to suffering and abuse and execution. From this time on, our passage begins. In other words, it's something being told from the, for the first time, but continuing, and he will repeat this again four and five or more times in Matthew's remaining chapters. This explicit announcement that he has come to go to a cross. Now, you say, I knew that. That's not new to me. But you have to put yourself in the development of this gospel. They had not heard that before. And this is really a shock. As he says, he began to explain that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised from the dead. The news was absolutely shocking. He repeated it, as I've said more times in just as explicit language, and yet when the cross arrived and when the events began to unfold, you know that those disciples weren't sitting there saying, we know what's coming now. They were overwhelmed by it. They were utterly surprised, and they just couldn't accept that what he had said was actually going to happen. Up till now, Jesus had only spoken about his death in a rather veiled kind of way. There are several different ways he did that. One was when he said, The time is going to come when the bridegroom is taken away. What did that mean? Nobody knew. But he hadn't given the open definition of things. Now he does. Now 
Calvary in all of its blood and violence and, and the full assault of it is his goal. Another gospel says he, he, at a time just after this, set his face like a flint to go towards that cross. Every other goal was now subordinated to this, and the disciples were absolutely staggered by what they had heard. If you could imagine a cross built somewhere, maybe on a prominent hill, a 75-foot-high cross, there are such things sometimes in areas overlooking a town where someone has built such a cross years gone by, and you would know, of course, that as the sun rose in the east, the shadow of that cross would be cast upon the land off in the opposite direction to the west. And then, of course, the sun would move in its path through the day, or the earth actually moves, not the sun, but, but as that takes place, the shadow moves. And by evening, the shadow with the sun in the west would be headed towards the east. I like to think of our text, in a sense, and maybe helping you to understand the two points I want to make here today, as telling us that the shadow of the cross in this time and in this situation extended in two directions at the same time. It extended in one direction for Jesus and another for the disciples. For Jesus, it extended back into God's eternal counsels where the cross received its definition. For us, the shadow of the cross looms over every aspect of our lives here in this world. First of all, for Jesus, the shadow of the cross extended back into the eternal counsel of God. He sets it forth here as something that is an absolute necessity. It's not just a future event. It's already established. And there is a compulsion about it, a mandate to be obeyed regarding it. And this compulsion, you could say, existed first on just a circumstantial human level. For the cross was demanded, in one sense, by the events that Jesus was wrapped up in with opposition from the leaders there in Jerusalem, the various ones that made up what we call the Sanhedrin. They were different in the offices they they held and what they did. Some were priests, some were scholars, but they all made up a ruling council for the nation of Israel. And these people, the very leaders of the religion that had been taught to look for this Messiah were the very ones locked into opposition against Jesus in his entire way of looking at and dealing with the ancient scriptures of which they regarded themselves to be custodians. And he had so much opposition. We've seen some of it. I haven't gone into every detail of it as we've studied Matthew. But so many arguments, so many challenges where they saw things externally and he saw the internal meaning, that now things are in a situation where in order to provoke his own death, all Jesus really has to do is stop ducking the lynch mob that is trying to find him most of the time. It was necessary that the Son of God suffer at the hands of the leaders of Israel. That's a shocking thing. 
people from the Old Testament would never have anticipated that it would be their own leadership, their own pastors, their own Bible scholars who would put to death their own Messiah. But by this strange paradox, God shows us the rejection of his covenant offered to his people so long ago. But deeper than just the circumstances, it it really goes much farther back than just events around Jesus. For there's a mandate regarding the cross that reaches back into the unseen decrees of God, as we call them, The, the, the ideas, if you want to call them that, that God had of how he would plan and how he would carry out his work with mankind. Peter doesn't grasp it now, but later on, after the Lord reveals more things to him and after the cross when he preached on Pentecost, he gave this a wonderful statement in Acts 2.23 when he told the people of Jerusalem after the cross and after the resurrection, this Jesus was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. God's set purpose and foreknowledge. It was a plan long in place. Jesus also explained it on Easter evening along the Emmaus Road, Luke 24. 26 has him talking with disciples, and as they relay to him the events, not understanding who he is, you remember there, he says to them, did not the Christ have to suffer these things to enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explained what the Scriptures said about himself. He saw the plan reaching all the way back. Nobody else could see anything but swirling circumstances of the immediate day. Romans 3.25 tells us that God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. There's a sense in that verb to present that here was the great need, the need for sin to have an atonement. And the Father had a plan, and he, he had designed a work. He had written the drama, you could say. And now he presents the one who will carry the drama forward, his own son. In order to deal with the root of evil that humanity was captured under with the penalty of sin and death, the Son of God was presented and descended into the very depths of the earth with a sinless soul so that he who alone was qualified could come and face the assault, the crush that was the wrath of God brought through violent and hateful men. And by going to death as a sacrifice of atonement for human sin, he would actually open a way to eternal life for those who believe. This divine imperative has to be understood as coming, thundering its way out of the halls of eternity. Now, the New Testament wasn't alone in making it known, but many didn't notice how it had been presented in the Old Testament. A key verse is Isaiah 53, 10, which speaks about the suffering servant of God who is Christ. And it says there, it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. The Lord made him a guilt offering. Jesus understood himself as under this mandate. 
The cross was God's unalterable plan and yet one that he had to embrace with his own active will and be obedient to his Father in receiving this and acting accordingly. But these ideas were strange and incomprehensible to the disciples. Somehow they had missed Isaiah 53. I'm sure they'd heard it. But they never drew the equation that this would be what the Messiah would do. And so you have Peter, good old Peter. He's so much like us. He just had a shining moment a few verses ago, receiving the commendation of the Lord for seeing correctly that he was the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he does a 180, absolutely 180, and speaks almost the dumbest thing he ever said. Not you, Lord. Never, this will never happen to you. And you see, of course, that he was 100% right about who Jesus was in Matthew 16, 16, but 100% wrong about his essential work when he speaks here just a few verses later. I wonder what it felt like and what the tone, the inflection of voice was that Jesus spoke as he turned on Peter and spoke the next startling thing. Get behind me, Satan! How would you feel if you had given a friend advice that you thought you were acting in their best interest and speaking and saying, now, no, you must be confused right now. Let me... Let me bring you down to earth here and give you some good advice. And that person turned on you and called you Satan for offering what you thought was your best advice. Well, Jesus called him that and was just that vehement because he heard in the words of Peter another voice, a voice that he had heard two years earlier in the temptation in the desert, when Satan said, you can have all this, you can have a kingdom, you don't need to suffer, you don't need that path that you sense you're being called to, just do it my way. And by the way, do you remember the gospel said that Satan, after that, departed from him until an opportune time? Here was an opportune time. He was back, and his mouthpiece was Peter. Well, folks, we need to read this and understand how arrogant it is that any man or woman should imagine that we know more about how God should do his work than God does. And yet we make similar practical denials of biblical truth all the time. If Peter speaks with Satan's tone of voice and and content of message here, we do it too. And sometimes it's when we're telling ourselves or telling somebody else that which is our best instinct, our, you know, our common sense, our collective wisdom. Oh, we say, now let's be practical. Just do this. But the problem is that Satan has so influenced and infiltrated our entire worldview and what we regard as good human wisdom that even when we're speaking what may seem like good common sense, we may be 100% contrary to the wisdom of God. For God's ways are not man's ways. We need to be ready to understand that. 
Well, the summary of this first point would be simply to say that Christianity without the ugly cross of Calvary is a worthless thing. The substitutionary death of Christ in the place of every sinner and the benefits that arise from that of eternal life and forgiveness and peace with God are the foundation of our gospel faith. I've quoted before from Bishop J.C. Ryle, a godly man of the 19th century in England. Bishop Ryle wrote this, quote, On matters of how we should govern the church or how in particular we should worship and many other things, believers may differ in their opinions and still reach heaven safely, he said. But on the matter of Christ's atoning death as the way of life and peace with God, there is only one right opinion. And if you go wrong with the cross, you are ruined. So here, let us take our stand. For Jesus, the shadow of the cross, was a mandate extending back into the very counsel of God. And it was the work the Father called him to do. Well, secondly, and more quickly today, our time is short here. I would make this point to you that for disciples, the shadow of the cross goes one way for Christ. It goes another way for us. For disciples, the shadow of the cross looms over all of life. I think most of you who have been here any time know that as we built this new worship sanctuary for our congregation just a few years ago, designing it and seeing it completed last year, we had certain ideals that we followed culturally in the history of Christianity, and we were much influenced by the ideals of the Puritans who built very simple places of worship, unadorned. And that was not only because simplicity is a kind of beauty in itself, but because they literally wanted to remove from their places of worship any kinds of symbolism or works of art that might be turned into idols or worshipped. Now that, of course, is not an opinion that all agree with and some consider it extreme. But certainly it does allow us to concentrate on the unseen God who cannot be depicted in any work of art. But we have people who come here and visit, and maybe your friends have at time, who, who look around and they say, well, now here's one thing I have against you. You don't have a cross on the wall anywhere. And my reply is to tell them this. There certainly is nothing wrong or sinful about having a cross in a sanctuary. But I would say this to them. I only wish that all churches that do think it's a mandatory thing to put a wooden cross on the wall of a worship place would also preach the cross from their pulpits and make known the mandate of Jesus Christ that those who would be his disciples must die to self and sacrifice to obey his word. It's far more important to faithfully declare the truth of the cross than to hang it on the wall. That I can assure you. And Jesus here speaks about the cross and its relation to a disciple. We don't have the time that it deserves to develop all the things that are in this one sentence today. Verse 24, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me.
He taught every disciple that we must first confess him as Savior and Lord, Son of God and Son of Man. But then, having confessed him, we are expected to put our shoulder beneath the cross and die to self-rule and self-determination and self-glory. There was no misunderstanding him when he spoke because in the first century to carry a cross or to even carry the horizontal beam, which is the part they usually carried, was to go on your own death march. Now you've probably heard people talk about the way in which this verse is classically misunderstood. When they say, oh, let me tell you about my cross to bear. My nagging arthritis pain, my rebellious son, my financial problems, my cranky mother-in-law. Well, you may have those things in your life and many other difficulties of a natural kind, but they are not your cross. They do not have anything to do with this verse. They don't fit here. Jesus is not talking about your minor hardships, your natural misfortunes, or even your physical handicaps or diseases you may suffer from. They are not your cross. The only correct way to understand what he's talking about here is the verse you heard earlier as an assurance in this service, Galatians 2.20. For every disciple can say, I am crucified with Christ. When he died, a death occurred for me. I died to the tyranny of the evil one. I died to self-determination. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I'm alive. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life I live now, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. After all, you know, it was self-seeking. To the extent that the Bible explains, and it's, it's very, very limited, the explanation in the Old Testament of Satan's rebellion. Isaiah 14 has a real hint about it. But it was self-seeking that caused Satan to say, look, as an angel of light, as one dwelling close to God, Satan said, I will exalt myself. I will have the place of rule. Why do I have to be subordinated to this God? I want my way. And we know that that's exactly what dwells in all of us. A natural, inbred selfishness has to be faced, has to be confronted. And in a literal sense, once we understand it and see its operation by the conviction of the Holy Spirit, it has to be routinely executed everywhere we recognize it. In fact, Luke 9.23 has Jesus saying, we face this cross on a daily basis. Take up your cross daily. This isn't something you do once and for all when you make a decision as a little child to trust Christ. You take up your cross daily in conscious denial of your will asserting itself over God's, obeying his word, being willing to sacrifice for others and putting their good before yours. One man called it prying yourself loose from yourself. Prying yourself loose from yourself. Following Jesus 
doesn't mean we die for other people. We don't accomplish what his cross did. That was unique and once for all as an atonement to God. We don't duplicate that. We don't even try to duplicate that. But we do recognize that there is a death of our will and our glory and our assertion. Me first goes to death when we follow the call of Christ. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his classic book about discipleship said, when Christ calls you, he bids you to come and die. For him, that was physical martyrdom. But for all of us, it means death to self. Tragically, today, the superficial religion that is increasingly masquerading as Christianity and not really Christianity is almost entirely about self-fulfillment. You can have the goodies of life. You can have and enjoy all the things that, that life would offer and have Jesus too. What a wonderful combination. Well, anyone who thinks that is Christianity quite likely remains an unconverted person. If you expect to have this life entirely on your own terms, Jesus says right here, you will lose it. In the early 1950s, a true story took place along Egypt's Mediterranean coast where three missionary men, fathers, and Bible translators had gone. Just the three men were there without their families, and uh, they were enjoying a brief respite at the beach there in the north coast of Egypt. Swimming, they heard all of a sudden the cries of someone in trouble, and ran to the edge of the surf and saw that indeed there was a teenage Egyptian girl crying out and apparently caught in an undertow. They had heard there were dangerous currents there. The three men swam out to the girl's aid, and she was rescued by them. However, two of them were caught in the undertow and drowned in the act of effecting that rescue. Very interestingly, it was 10 years later that the third missionary, after doing his work in other parts of Egypt, was back in that same coastal town, and he remembered so vividly the tragedy of that day and the loss of his two valued friends. And he thought he knew the, the name of the young woman who had been a teenager when rescued, and he thought, I, I try to find out. This is a small town. I can probably find out if she's still here. I wonder how her life has turned out. Well, he was very dismayed to find out that this young woman who he did find at age 26 was now a notorious prostitute and a serious alcoholic. Ten years of life granted her had been thrown away because she didn't die to self and had never been to the cross of Calvary, evidently. From a human point of view, it seemed that two very noble and useful lives had been sacrificed for one that we might call a worthless life. When Jesus gave himself at the cross for you and for me, the world might estimate that he made just that kind of a trade. The grandest, most valuable, most exalted life of all for yours. And if you are a person who can sit there and say, oh, but I'm worth it, 
then I say to you, you don't understand the gospel of Jesus Christ at all. God the Father compelled his Son, the one of infinite value, to go to a cross for those who were undeserving and unworthy. You can't make yourself deserving. You know, don't hear Jesus say, take up your cross so that you will become deserving of what I've done. You will never make yourself deserving. There have been people in monasteries who have studied practically 24 hours a day how to abase themselves and punish themselves and afflict their flesh, thinking that the more I I make myself sacrifice, the more I'll somehow be presentable or worthy to God. That's the absolutely wrong idea, folks. The right idea is in gratitude and in faith when you know what Christ did for you at Calvary you will realize that belonging to him is worth any self-denial, any sacrifice to obey him out of a return of the marvelous love that has been shown you. Christ calls you to dwell for the remainder of this life in the long shadow of his wondrous cross. And it's a marvelous place to be. Let's pray together. Dear Father, we thank you again for truth that shocked those who first heard it. Let its shock touch us while we we know it. We're not surprised like they were. Maybe we need to be shocked and surprised again to understand the infinite transaction that took place as Jesus walked to that historic cross, for everyone who believes in him, everyone the Lord our God shall call to have true faith. Father, as we come and receive these elements of the Lord's table, may we do it in humility, in seeking out ourselves and our obstinate will and laying it down before you, and also in true thankfulness and praise. For Jesus' sake, amen.